Welcome to the NATO Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel, and in this episode, I speak with Megan Tubner and Kelly Foy from the New York City Police Department. Megan is the Director of Counterterrorism Intelligence Analysis at the NYPD, and Kelly is its team lead for global risk intelligence. We discuss the evolving threats to national security and the dangerous role disinformation plays in that. Megan Tobner and Kelly Foy, warm welcome to NATO Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's great to have you both uh, with us, um, especially with so many important things that are happening in the world uh, right now. So some things that I would like to talk to you both about um, in in your work with the uh, New York Police Department is the challenges of extremist narratives and catalytic events. But before we delve into that, um, Megan, talk to me about your role with the NYPD and what that entails. Sure, happy to. Um, So I am currently the Director of Intelligence Analysis for the NYPD's Intelligence and Counterterrorism Bureau. I oversee our intelligence operations and analysis section in the intelligence division. Um, And with an operational counterpart, we are basically tasked with ensuring that we are integrating operational efforts, investigative efforts, information that is coming in from multiple different sources of of, um, reporting, and that we consolidate that into intelligence analysis and share that as far and wide as we can. Obviously, it has to be tailored for the right audience. Um, and when, if it's an investigation, an ongoing investigation, we're coordinating, coordinating that with our um, with our FBI and other federal partners. But our mission is counterterrorism. So we are looking at ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, IRGC, Quds Force, and all of their different proxies, as well as all of the, the different provinces and um, affiliates of the terrorist groups, um, obviously now especially focused on Hamas and Hamas capabilities after what they demonstrated on um, 7 October. And we're looking at that. We're looking at the propaganda that they're putting out. We're looking at their communications channels. And we're always looking for that New York angle. Who is is this message resonating with? Is anybody responding to it? Are they looking to provide material support in whatever form that may look like? Travel, finance, or... Obviously, the thing we're most concerned with is some form of kinetic violent attack. We're doing that on the terrorism side. We're also doing that on the domestic violent extremist side across the ideological spectrum. We have a team that is focused on what we would call racially ethnically motivated violent extremism. Um, And on the other kind of end of the political spectrum, so to speak, we have a team that's focused on anti-government, anti-authority extremism and everything in between. So our our unit is primarily on the NYPD's counterterrorism and combating domestic violent extremism mission. We also have a little bit of effort into insider threat, counterintelligence, and cyber threat intelligence. Um, The cyber threat side of things is more on the strategic intel information sharing side. We're not in the ones and zeros, I like to say. We're not protecting NYPD's networks, but making sure that our partners in our information tech um, technology bureau have what they need to do their job to protect our system. So it's a, a wide ranging 
task and mission. And obviously it's never a dull moment, especially these days, but um, it is an incredible partnership between analysts and uniformed officers on a daily basis, working to keep the, the city safe. Certainly, as you say, never a dull moment and uh, a very large remit in one of the most important cities in the world, dealing with all those plethora of uh, challenges. Um, Kelly, if I come to you, so how does your work um, uh, dovetail with uh, what, what Megan oversees? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for having us. Um, so I am the team lead of our global risk intelligence team within the Intel and Counterterrorism Bureau. So that in a nutshell, is essentially our strategic intelligence shop. We're developing written intelligence assessments. We're also delivering um, oral briefings on really a range of topics related to the current threat environment, with the main goal being enhancing the situational awareness and preparedness of all of our various partners. Um, now, who does that entail? Um, of course, first and foremost, um, the executive leadership of the NYPD, of the Intelligence and Counterterrorism Bureau, um, are over 35,000 uniformed NYPD members of service, but it also includes our various public sector partners at different agencies, both in New York and beyond, uh, and our private sector partners as well. So my team coordinates very closely, uh, for example, with our international and domestic liaison unit, uh, basically to facilitate that intelligence and information sharing with not only law enforcement around the country, but internationally as well through our liaison program. So uh, as, as you likely know, we have NYPD liaisons stationed both in the U.S. and abroad, um, not serving as intelligence officers, but once again, to facilitate that intel and information sharing. And my team serves as the primary conduit um, for those individuals, really trying to get them the information they need. So my team is writing on a daily basis about anything from the latest extremist propaganda releases, whether from Salafi jihadist extremists like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, from racially, ethnically motivated violent extremists, uh, mainly to look at what they are trying to get across in terms of recommended tactics uh, and targeting that then we can translate for our own officers to make them more prepared. We also um, frequently write about any major significant developments going on in the world that could mobilize someone to violence. We write about significant attacks and plots. Uh, and once again, the main focus of that being main takeaways for our officers. So really kind of the strategic uh, portion of our shop that's aggregating all of this information and getting that back out to our partners. Well, I know from my own uh, personal insights and having discussed in the past with many of you in the uh, on various issues, just how well uh, researched, knowledgeable you are on the world and what is happening globally. And uh, I think it is phenomenal the work that, that you all do, not just for keeping New York safe, but having actually a much wider impact uh, beyond just the US and contributing to global uh, peace and stability. So uh, please keep doing the work you all are doing. Um, well, I you to say thank you. Well, it's it's a fact. Um, you do you guys do such important work. Um, and let's let's look delve further into that then. So the two of you have um, been writing and 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 researching the the concerns about extremist narratives and and catalytic events. If we sort of uh, take it um piece by piece. So you I think you both have said that, what used to be primarily behind closed doors, as in certain types of information and 
and content and, and radical uh, narratives, those have become increasingly uh, mainstream. Um, so how has that process taken place? Maybe, Megan, if we start with you. So I think it's several different factors. And I think part of it is that we have we have seen extremist narratives show up in everyday life and in mainstream media in the past. Um, but what we're seeing now is this cycle of the extremist narrative that used to be kind of kept behind closed doors and encrypted channels because you knew that you were going to be an outlier. You were, you know, you were not the norm. So you were finding your kind of echo chamber, your circle of friends that would agree with you and have these extremist views, but you were keeping it close hold. But what we're seeing now is that these, what used to be kind of smaller encrypted conversations are happening at a larger scale on some social media platforms that then make their way over out of maybe say a more um, secure encrypted platform like Telegram and then making their way, making that same narrative then moving over to a more mainstream social media platform that reaches a much wider audience and without really changing the, the narrative at all. So it's hate rhetoric, it's um, anti-Semitism, it's misogyny, it's uh, any number of kind of narratives that are baked into a lot of the um, violent extremist ideology that we are concerned with. And then it gets on mainstream social media and it is accessible to so many more people. And I think we're in a society now that then once it's seen there, it's seemed as almost an acceptable narrative to either take on yourself and then comment further on or create some form of discord fights with your, you know, the person who has the opposite opinion, then it makes it into the press. And then that then goes back into encrypted channels because they see the impact of it. They use it for recruitment. They have more conversations and then the cycle continues and another variation on a theme of that same narrative will pop back up into more mainstream social media and um, in some cases, you know, on the news that everybody is turning into or tuning into on uh, any one of these, you know, 24 seven news channels. So it is really the phenomenon is what is concerning is, is that it is so easily going from the encrypted world where you have a small number of people chatting about it to it being a wide open discussion and the wider audience that these messages reach the harder it is for law enforcement to know to truly truly kind of suss out who is who is a violent extremist who is a keyboard warrior who do we need to worry about mobilizing to violence and when the the when it's so widespread and that challenge just becomes so much more difficult for law enforcement. I don't know, Kelly, do you have more? Yeah. Yeah. If I could just add to that, I would say a concerning trend too, that we've seen even our online threats, hostile, violent rhetoric in comments uh, on postings by major media personalities, by elected officials, um, individuals that even if that original post wasn't violent in nature. People kind of feel galvanized and bolden to jump upon that 
to issue their own kind of hostile rhetoric. And then that compounds. And like Megan said, it's very visible. It's very out there. Um, it's occurring on these major social media platforms. And we see it day to day as you have elected officials, have media personalities speak on certain issues that are unfolding, certain crises that are unfolding. Um, they post and then it sparks comments. And with that kind of a flurry of this really hostile rhetoric, uh, which is really incredibly difficult for us to get our arms around and isn't that typical um, kind of small, tight knit extremist forum. It's much, much, much broader than that, which means the problem uh, is much larger for us to get our arms around. Yes, that's very troubling and disconcerting just how mainstream it's becoming. And as you were saying uh, earlier, Megan, just trying to draw that separation between who is potentially a keyboard warrior and those that actually wish to do us um, harm. Um, so if we continue to build on this, um, one other aspect is that the propaganda, the narratives that are being pushed can be flashy videos, they can be memes, which are very easily resharable. So um, Kelly, why is that perhaps different to what we had seen previously? Because maybe that type of new media content was still out there in the past, but there seems to be some kind of shift, right? Yeah, I think it just lends itself way better to being shared broadly on these platforms. So you're not just, and don't get me wrong, some of the types of propaganda releases from foreign terrorist organizations that involve these lengthy speeches, uh, these lengthy, very text-based um, documents certainly still exist, but we're also seeing um, these memes that are reproduced, uh, that are easily shared, even these large, um, I would say, extremist propaganda documents. So um, one, for example, there's this uh, racially, ethically motivated, violent extremist, uh, accelerationist kind of network called Terragram that's released these really lengthy propaganda documents. But the pages themselves are kind of designed to be taken out of that context and then shared uh, individually within these extremist forums. Um, and we see sometimes, too, uh, I'll see an image uh, threatening, say, politicians or law enforcement broadly and you do reverse image searches, and that meme, uh, that image has been circulating for five years. Um, so these kind of continually get a lot of um, circulation on these platforms. And just because they're flashy too, uh, they're more digestible, they're easy to look at, um, they're cool, <laughs> um, frankly, uh, for these individuals to be sharing rather than these more lengthy propaganda documents. So I think there's just kind of a greater resonance there than there was previously. Interesting. Megan, would you like to add anything to that? Um, I think Kelly really touched on it. We, it is part of it, I think, is to avoid censorship and to avoid getting, you know, deplatformed or what have you by the social media companies. So instead of putting, you know, maybe putting something in, um, in words or putting out some hateful or extremist propaganda or, um, you know, uh, reposting in the entirety of like an inspire guide or um, so an ISIS tactical guide that will be flagged almost immediately by a platform. If you put out a, you know, meme of a smiley face that has a Hitler mustache, you know, painted on it, then you can propagate your message so much longer and so much further without getting with, without getting removed from the platform. So people are kind of finding ways to yeah. 
to get their hate out uh, whilst trying to pretend that it there isn't necessarily a specific agenda. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and and it's successful, right? Like as Kelly said, we, we could do a reverse image search, and we'll see some images popping up across across the ideological spectrum and across platforms. It's um, it's very easy to create a meme that's going to appeal to, especially if you're looking to recruit and you're looking to kind of have an impact on the, the younger generation. Um, the meme, the video that's chaotic and it is dissonant, it, it appeals to a generation that has grown up looking at this, living in this online environment. Um, we are definitely long past the days of the Zawahiri video of, you know, the long speech from a terrorist leader. Um, no offense to Zawahiri, um, <laughs> but it is it is just not going to appeal to people in the way that a meme or at least youth. Well, indeed, and I think uh, Al Zawahiri was an interesting example. Uh, biased opinion, of course. Anyone who knows me knows my book is coming out, and I'm an Al Zawahiri. He he certainly brought in the concept of new media. I wonder how he would have looked at the role that memes would be playing uh, a role in in getting the narratives um, out. Um, speaking of which, um, certain narratives are persuasive across um, ideologies, and one very disturbing trend is misogyny. Uh, that has been uh, a consistent line that has gone across many different ideological beliefs and has contributed to to violence itself. Um, Megan, perhaps if, if we start with you, where where are we at when it comes to misogyny and violence and and these narratives that are emerging in the in the current environment? So. I'll start in the most obvious kind of ideological realm, and that's the involuntary celibate, whose like primary narrative is misogyny. It is their primary driver. Um, and what is then frightening about the in that narrative in the incel community is that we do see a lot of overlap with the incel community and accelerationist and you know other racially ethnically motivated violent extremists. So what starts out as an incel on an incel forum narrative about just hate directed at women for existing for the most part. Um, it is so much about, you know, women having to know their place to, you know, their participation in society is just to be there as an object for, for men, as, as far as the incel community would like it, um, that that then gets transferred into the RenV space. And then what we see the misogyny in the kind of RenV space is what they consider a throwback to the 1950s and the role of a female and how um, feminism has destroyed, you know, the US and, um, and I'm sure other countries in the world. And so we see this kind of theme of keeping women down um, or or really to the sidelines of society is having no impact in society. Um, and so it is, and then it, uh, we see the same thing obviously in the Salafi Jihadi side as well. So it is, it is something that we see that kind of goes across the spectrum and the primary, I think 
undertone of it is, if, in fact, maybe not an undertone, the, the kind of primary driver is to keep women down or aside um, and to not have really much of a role in society at all. Yes, and that unfortunately seems to only be uh, growing and proliferating uh, more and more. Um, Kelly, are there any other angles on that misogyny role that you'd want to bring in? Yeah, I would just say we see kind of these hateful through lines across ideologies. And I think part of it, too, is that some of these extremist groups and individuals know that there are kind of these grievances that they can link onto that will have a really broad appeal, not just within their own specific groups, but within broader extremist communities. So it's also kind of a way to get various individuals holding a variety of hateful beliefs to rally around kind of certain causes, certain hateful beliefs generally. So if we uh, look at this further, there's a major fault line that's emerged in the Middle East, the uh, crisis between uh, Israel and uh, Hamas following the 7th of October 2023 uh, attacks. Um, what role does misogyny play in the fallout from uh, those those attacks? Um, perhaps if we start with, uh, with you, Megan. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think what struck me and has really been um, very painful as somebody who has worked terrorism for 17 plus years at this point um, is the the kind of very brutal use of sexual violence as a weapon in the attack on 7 October and um, to know that that exists and is widely understood and to still see and hear people parroting messages about um individual like the the that Israel deserved this attack or something along those lines. Um, it is heartbreaking as a female to think that there isn't a delineation between Hamas as a terrorist group and the horrible, horrific things that they did. And and obviously there the sexual violence is just one of many things, uh, tactics that were used on 7 October. But it is, I would say at least for me, the the first time that that rape as a weapon has been so prevalent in a terrorist attack like this. We have obviously with the um, uh, treatment of the Yazidi females, it was horrific and and I'm I'm certain very similar to what um, some Israeli citizens experienced on seven October. But this in 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 the the in an attack that like. 7 October, I just can't think of a time in which sexual violence and, and rape was used in, in um, as a weapon in such a, a brutal way to include, you know, this is anecdotal, um, the, the anecdotal evidence of, of, in some cases, forcing people to log on to their own social media to live stream assaults on themselves and then their death. I mean, this is, this is a next level brutality and cruelty. This next level brutality is, I think it's it's very significant and deplorable as to what has um, been uncovered from the aftermath of, of that attack. Um, so Kelly, let me ask you this, then how does one deal with that in terms of also 
educating people that this was a tactic effectively that was used by a group like uh, Hamas, especially when within the social media space, there's so much disinformation going on, people questioning whether these things even happened. Uh, how does one even go about trying to firstly uh, better inform people and then tackle that disinformation uh, that maybe these things didn't happen? Yeah, the disinformation piece has been a huge, huge challenge with this. Um, and I think there's kind of that education piece, especially for our own officers. Like I said, in terms of the products that my team puts out, we are always trying to learn from the tactics that we are seeing used in attacks abroad to try to inform our own officers in case they were to confront the same tactics here. So there's that kind of broad uh, education piece that's very inclusive of tactics. Um, that live streaming piece that Megan mentioned was a really uh, large portion of that. We've seen live streaming more and more um, as a tactic used by extremists across the ideological spectrum. But I think this is, uh, as Megan mentioned, kind of the first time uh, that we've seen on a large scale it being used in the context of live streaming via social media of the victims to reach their families to kind of increase uh, the psychological trauma um, there. Um, on the disinformation piece in particular, I think it's just um, acknowledging that there is a lot of trauma, firstly, a lot of fear in the communities um, well beyond the area where these attacks took place um, to here in our own city. Um, so making sure that our community knows that we are very much tracking these events as they unfold, um, not only the attacks themselves, but the extremist messaging um, following them to make sure that we are getting ahead of any chance for that to reverberate here. We also, in kind of a broader sense, uh, really try as a as a bureau, as a department, as a whole, um, to get ahead of some of the disinformation. So making sure the community is aware of all the initiatives that we're undertaking, making sure the community is aware that while we are very much on top of these threats, uh, we're doing the investigations that are required, we're tracking extremist messaging, we are not aware of any specific or credible threats um, in that moment. Um, so trying to get ahead basically of the fear uh, and communicate that this is something that we are extremely on top of. And it's really uh, if important. I could just add really please. quickly, uh, you know, this is, I, I think your question is perfect because it's a, it's, it's a tenet of intelligence analysis, right? It is what we're always seeking to do is make sure that what we are portraying is not biased. It's unemotional. It is a analysis of the evidence that we have at hand. And so um, Kelly's team, and they do a great job when we're putting out products, we, we source it. We want people to understand what we are basing that assessment on. Um, we do our best to try to to suss out the disinformation and the misinformation, but we will caveat it if we don't have the the details, right? It will be, you know, we are ba basing this assessment on limited intelligence at this at, in this moment in time. Um, and but it is a particular challenge, especially if you have nation states, malign nation states that are very good at dis and misinformation. And propagating that to a very wide audience, um, it, it it is a challenge to to counter that. And I think Kelly really nailed it. It's it's truly about the communication and the transparency with the community and our partners at different levels, obviously, 
we, as Kelly said, we recognize the trauma of 7 October is, has an impact far outside of the region and is absolutely felt by um, citizens of New York City. And so making sure that they feel confident that we are doing everything in our power to identify the true threats, to review the extremist rhetoric, the hate rhetoric. In most cases here in the U.S., a lot of what is being said is constitutionally protected. And it is, it is in some cases, it, it is the amalgamation of all of the constitutionally protected language that's going to mobilize somebody to violence. But it is, um, it, I think it, it truly is the job of an intelligence analyst to do our best to tell an unbiased, unemotional story to get that out to the, to the appropriate audiences. Yes, and it's very key that you do that. And I know how hard you all are working on that front. But let me ask you this, um, Megan, based on what you had just been saying. So violent and conspiratorial rhetoric is only increasing. It's not decreasing. We're seeing it uh, develop many tentacles in various different ideological hues. And that's being fueled by controversial uh, events and developments around the world. So is this now the new normal? Is this something that is just part of the daily work that a CT analyst is going to have to look at? I think so. I don't I don't foresee this going anywhere anytime soon or changing. I don't see our capability of identifying it right from the get-go as changing anytime soon, um, primarily because our adversaries are going to be just as good at manipulating social media and manipulating audiences as we would consider ourselves capable of, of trying to defeat. Um, so it is, um, I think, we are only going to see an increase. And I imagine here in the US, once we really get into the next presidential election cycle, um, it is going to increase exponentially because I think that our, um, even people within the United States, but definitely our you know, malign nation states recognize the power of fomenting discord in, um, in elections. So I imagine here in the US, it is uh, it is only going to increase over the next year. And I, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. We, we seem, it, we, I know we all experience this, this, right? When we are watching TV or listening to the news and you hear something that is factually just like, proven to be untrue, like there's video evidence of something not happening or happening a different way, it still just doesn't seem to matter because people get on social media and they say, and they, you know, make one claim that it's a, you know, a conspiracy by the government to do this, or it's a red flag to blame the, we see that all the time, Kelly, I'm sure can speak more to it too, an extremist rhetoric, right? Like an incident happens it is, um, say, say the Buffalo attack in Peyton Gendron, right? This attack happens and we automatically see people coming out within the, the racially, ethnically motivated violent extremism sphere saying like, oh, this is something the government is doing to make us look bad. I, I just don't know how you counter that. <laughs> no, and um, I'm 
my only reason for my pause is because I'm just processing it all. It sounds all a lot to 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 handle. Um, Kelly, anything you'd like to to follow up with? Yeah, I think something that we're kind of always battling against in these situations is that people are inclined to believe something that confirms the pre-existing yeah. mindset that they already have. So when you have these extremists, these malign, malicious actors pushing these certain narratives, they know that there is that audience that is already kind of predisposed to be very receptive to what they are pushing out there. Uh, and kind of around all of these attacks, all of these really, um, I would say, controversial hot button developments, you always see the conspiracies follow and they really prey to on these kind of broad fears, this paranoia that is already out there and just makes it easy for them to push those narratives. Very dangerous narratives. And so then, um, Kelly, let me ask you this. Um, you've done research on what can be described as catalytic events um, and, and, and triggering uh, violence. Could you explain firstly what catalytic events mean and, and what the, the significance of that is in the current context? Yes. Um, so I would say generally um, something that I've become more and more passionate about on the most basic level is understanding, firstly, what drives an individual to violence. Uh, and then secondly, how those driving factors influence their attack planning. So as part of my thesis at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security at the Naval Postgraduate School, um, I focused on just one small piece of that puzzle. Um, so that's the role of what you hear me refer to as catalytic events in pushing an individual to violence. And on the most basic level, I define a catalytic event as anything that plays a, a meaningful role in a an individual's decision to mobilize to violence. So as part of my thesis, I looked at plots and attacks that I assess to be driven at least in part by three major catalytic events, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the police murder of George Floyd and the 2020 presidential election with really kind of an ultimate goal of developing a framework for understanding and confronting that type of violence. So here I'll also caveat, I'm interested, you could say there are internal catalytic events that are more personal, more specific to that individual. And then there are these external catalytic events, which an individual may not have a personal link or connection to, but that can still play a role in mobilizing them to violence. So through my research, I found that catalytic events have the potential to trigger a range of individuals to violence, some uh, with extremist beliefs, some with ties to extremist groups, some not. Um, and they really significantly impact both the targets that individuals choose, uh, as well as the timing of their assaults. So in some cases, really rapidly mobilizing uh, individuals to violence. Um, so I found that there were kind of different buckets in terms of the ways the catalytic events mobilize individuals to violence. Um, so one big one is that they can present what a malicious actor perceives as an opportunity to maximize violence or capitalize on chaos. So this could be an individual who is already planning on perpetrating an attack, has explored a range of targets, but the catalytic event is what kind of focuses that attack planning. Um, so one case in particular, there was a racially motivated violent extremist uh, outside of Missouri who explored a variety of targets for an assault, but ultimately settled uh, on plotting to blow up a hospital at the onset of the pandemic to exploit public fear. Um, the second category is catalytic events that really exacerbate grievances individuals have and contribute to their radicalization. 
Um, so individuals who may not have had ties even to extremism before, but they're really driven by rage. Um, so kind of looking at all of this in totality, my goal was, okay, now as law enforcement, what do we do about all of this? So I recommended um, potential law enforcement prevention and mitigation measures that could correspond to the different ways that catalytic events mobilize individuals to violence. Um, and there are a variety of actions that we could take. Um, assessing the resonance of a catalytic event with current investigative subjects, individuals of concern. Um, so someone with potentially already ties to extremism, already considering doing some something, and this could be that last push, uh, implementing protective measures at locations that could be high value targets associated with that catalytic event. So in the case of the Israel-Hamas conflict, of course, you're looking at religious targets, whether that be um, mosques, whether that be synagogues, other locations associated with um, the Jewish and Palestinian communities. And then um, I think a central part of this discussion, just looking at relevant online threats and propaganda linked to them, both to generate investigative leads, but then also to kind of take the pulse of um, assess that current threat level and maintain an awareness once again of that tactical and targeting violence so that we can get that out to law enforcement. So basically being proactive and recognizing that not everyone who's considering carrying out an act of violence is already on our radar. We know that individuals have, um, and I saw it in my research based on the cases that I looked at, they have a tendency to respond to these catalytic flashpoint events. So how is law enforcement? Can we identify these potential catalytic events and then get ahead of them in terms of our posture uh, with respect to prevention and also mitigation? Well, it sounds like very interesting uh, research. Um, if you haven't copyrighted the term catalytic event, I would do that before anyone steals it, including me. Um, <laughs> Megan, anything you'd like to add to that? Um, no, I think, you know, Kelly has done so, so much great research on this. And, and we have definitely seen this play out in our, in our, you know, security environment here in New York City. So, you know, Kelly focused on COVID, George Floyd, and the 2020 election, but we could point to the search warrant on, at Mar-a-Lago and the volume of threat reporting we saw on our hostile rhetoric, I should say, online. And then we see what happened at the FBI office in Cincinnati. Um, here in New York City, we had a, um, a complaint and indictment against the former president, which led to just an exponential growth in um, online threats, hostile rhetoric directed at the district attorney of Manhattan and um, also the state attorney general and the office itself, other prosecutors, other government facilities in New York. And so while this feeling, right, these grievances are already exist in society, this kind of pseudo catalytic event of dropping a criminal complaint or indictment then brings everything to the surface and just creates this huge divide and and you know for us our concern is an immediate is right like keeping people who have the constitutional constitutional right to protest keeping them safe that's all we want to do people are going to protest they have a right to do that we want to make sure that they are they are safe when they do that but we also need to ensure that the people that are getting targeted are safe. And so we are 
monitoring online. We're working with partners to 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 sift through the noise and and truly, um, I know it's probably an overused term at this point, but finding the signal in the noise of a post-catalytic event type um, development is is a real challenge. We're if up could... to it. We're up to it, but it is a challenge. Yeah. And if I could just add to that too, something that kind of prompted me to look at this even more is what I see as a sense of urgency as we approach the 2024 presidential election, given all of the vitriol, hostile, violent rhetoric, um, and the U.S. Capitol riot that we saw following the 2020 presidential election. The, like Megan said, like the volume of threats that we see around public officials, I would say, is pretty unprecedented, um, at least in the last few years. And we see that um, in response to, like Megan said, high profile raids, high profile arrests, but also even on a local level um, in response to some particular policy decisions that you wouldn't expect to resonate as much as they do. Um, so that's something that we've uh, really kept a close eye on and will continue to, especially as we approach the election season. Well, I mean, this has all been very thought provoking our entire discussion. I, I feel like we, as we reach the sort of the conclusion of it, we need to have some positives as well to try and make everyone feel a bit better if we can, because there's just so much bad news in the world. Um, well, let me let me start with you, um, um, uh, Megan, is that one thing we've spoken about in the past many times is the role of women in counterterrorism. You've mentioned the flip side of how uh, violence towards women and, and radicalization has, has been a challenge. And based on recent case studies, that's been uh, demonstrated. Uh, where are we at when it comes to women being more engaged, involved, and 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 allowed to grow within the CT uh, network, um, not just in say New York, but within the U.S. and 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 globally? Where are we at on that? I think that um, we are at a really great moment in time in women having an impact on the national security environment, especially in terrorism. Um, here in New York, obviously, we just had our new deputy commissioner names, um, Rebecca Weiner, and um, and that's a great thing for women. And I think that's a great thing for younger women to see that these opportunities exist. For me, I started out my career at the National Counterterrorism Center and seeing Director Abizaid named as the first female director of NCTC was a huge inspiration to me to see that somebody um, can, a, a female is given this task and and quite frankly, just doing a phenomenal job at it. Um, same with the DNI and, and DNI Haynes. It's, it's really, really empowering um, for me to see that. And I can only imagine for younger, younger females who are just getting into the business to see that there is this pathway to the very very top. I mean, in the CT national security space, to have the the director of national intelligence, a female, that that's the highest that you could aim to be, I would think. So um, I think that we're at a really, really great place with um, empowering females, females looking out for other females in this world. Um, there's a lot of great conferences that exist that are focus very specifically on women in law enforcement or women, women in counterterrorism. And so I think that I, I, I do think that we're at a great, a great 
um, place in the community with women being empowered and having an impact on the on the mission. Well, you certainly cited a lot of uh, important people there, including our mutual friend, uh, Rebecca Weiner, a friend yeah. of also the podcast as well. And yeah. uh, we've had her on before. And uh, Kelly, let me ask you what, what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, I was going to say, as one of those women uh, who's earlier on in my career, it's definitely really encouraging and really empowering to see people like Megan, um, like Commissioner Weiner in the positions that they are. You know, you come into law enforcement and you know that that's going to be much more of a, or has historically been a much more male dominated space. Um, but in seeing these leaders, I see myself, I see other women uh, represented. And I think that's really encouraging as far as seeing kind of a trajectory for yourself and growing within those organizations and seeing these voices that you really respect um, kind of taking these really important roles um, and really guiding the direction of our department. Um, it's amazing to see, like Megan said, in the intelligence community writ large, but also in our um, department specifically. I tell the analysts, um, some of the junior analysts who are women on my team, like, you know, you will walk into some environments where you are the only woman in the room and you can choose to be intimidated by that or you can choose to be really empowered by that. Um, and that's at least uh, the view that I always take. I'm always appreciated to be um, in environments where my voice can be heard and just being able to look at people like Megan and like Commissioner Weiner um, is really amazing. And I would add, um, it is outside of the counterterrorism and um, intelligence space at the, at the NYPD. There are a lot of really, truly incredible female leaders within the NYPD that are having a real impact on, on the on public safety in New York City. And within the Intelligence and Counterterrorism Bureau and both the Intelligence Division and Counterterrorism Division, um, there are multiple females in, in leadership roles uh, that I have just the utmost respect for. They, It's been so incredible for me at the NYPD to to really learn from um, so many different women who have had different experiences than I have, maybe more on the operational side, have had different roles within this kind of mission space, and and you really learn from each other, and it's 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 truly um, it's truly a team effort. So to to kind of build off of the kind of positivity vibe that we're wanting to put out at the end of of a um, kind of um, depressing conversation. The um, what we accomplish is accomplished because of the team that is all on the same page and wanting to to kind of fight the same fight and be and 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 really um, be dedicated to the our public safety mission. And there is. Um, I am I am a better leader because what I've learned from an operational counterpart um, who has a, a slightly maybe a, a slightly different leadership style than I do, or a different perspective that I haven't even I hadn't even thought of because I I you know don't have the experience of being a detective uh, working a case. So it is um, there are so many females that I'm incredibly grateful for at the NYPD. Um, um, some that have just recently been promoted into executive officer positions in the intelligence division that it, it's just, um, I think a very, um, a very cool time 
for 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 females in the NYPD and also in the kind of counterterrorism mission space. Well, these are great comments um, by by both of you and um, Megan. One thing I'll say about about you is I will remember when we first met, which was uh, one of the Five Eyes conferences that was organized by the NYPD uh, yeah. some years ago, and I remember you you speaking, and I just I was very taken by what you had to say and the leadership role that you've had within the NYPD. And I, I always uh, saw that you would be a great source of inspiration to a lot of people, uh, not just uh, women, but uh, men too. Um, and uh, it's more power to you. And the NYPD, I think, is a very leading example, especially the analysts that you all have. I've seen how many women work there uh, mm -hmm. and how uh, how much importance they play in providing that safety and security uh, to New York. So it's really, really encouraging. And I and I hope more and more women continue to engage in counterterrorism because we need them. And I would make the point that with the challenges of misogynistic violence tied to ideology, with conflict zones around the world that uh, are fueled by hatred towards women, we need to have more women in counterterrorism to counter that, to challenge that. Um, so Megan and, and Kelly, the role you're both playing is so critically important. Well, thank you. Um, that means a lot to me, um, more than I could probably put into words. Um, but I I think you're right. I think that this is the, the time that women's voices need to be heard in the counterterrorism mission space. Most definitely. Well, let me thank you both again, uh, Megan and Kelly, for being on the NATO Deep Dive podcast. And uh, yes, the conversation was challenging, but it's very important that we are better informed about what's going on in the world. And you both have done that um, with, with great detail. So my appreciation to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having having us. It's truly an honor to be on your podcast. And, and it's truly uh, an honor to have been your friend over the last couple of years and to learn from you as well. So um, I'm very excited that we were able to, to do this. My appreciation to you. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of NATO Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. My producers are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the NATO Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.